What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. So today is the first in our series of listener-inspired slice-of-life FDS episodes, where we get a chance to interview our FDS listeners and get some insight into their personal journey from pick me to queen or I don't know, maybe not pick me to queen because some people have been queen energy from day one, which I totally admire. (laughs) I'm slightly jealous of as well. Slightly jealous, right? So, (laughs) But today we are absolutely delighted to welcome June to our podcast. June is very active within our Discord community and we are really, really excited to interview her today. So welcome to the FDS podcast, June. Thanks, ladies. Ro, I will say it is Pick Me to Queen. That is, I think, an accurate title for my journey, for sure. We've all been there. Maybe that could be the title of like the FDS book, Pick Me to Queen. Pick Me to Queen. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, June, thank you so much for being willing to join us and to share your story, because it sounds like you've had such an interesting journey. And I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing a bit more. But, you know, first of all, can you tell us about, you know, your background specifically in dating? You know, so what was your dating philosophy before? How you came to find FDS? How you found FDS initially? Because I remember when I like first came across FDS, I was going through the mist of ending a relationship that should have really ended like within three months, but I dragged out three years and I felt personally attacked <laughs> at first. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, not only you found FDS, but your initial response to FDS as well. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what you just said resonates with me. I started dating the person that I married very young, I started dating at 18. And so, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I had a, a fully fledged dating philosophy at that age. I just was kind of, you know, I met somebody and we got along well. So let's just see where it goes was kind of the philosophy. Been a, like a serial monogamist my whole life. And so that was always really important to me. You know, I have, I think my parents have been married for 36 years. And so having that role model for me was really important to find a partnership that I thought was similar to what they had without really understanding what that meant at that age. And so you know, after sort of going through this relationship and it ultimately ending in a divorce, that's actually right around the time that I found FDS. And so kind of Savannah, like you said, I felt personally attacked, like, wow, how was I missing all of these things? And I think, you know, I live in an area that's very liberal. So lib femme ideology is very strong where I live. And so I was sort of like kind of under that too. And so this idea of all this kind of radical feminism was really new for me, although, uh, you know, liberal feminism was a really a concept that I was very familiar with and kind of comfortable with. So when I sort of joined FDS and I saw all these radical feminism ideologies, they were kind of in a lot of ways at odds with how I knew feminism. And so there was a lot of kind of like self-reconciliation I had to do with sort of my understanding and my viewpoint of the world as a woman. So it's like, it's definitely been a journey since then of sort of like stripping down a lot of that stuff and looking back at interactions and decisions and treatment that I accepted through my life, personally and professionally. It's taken some time of like self-work and kind of like consoling my past self, if that makes sense. Accepting who you were at the time, right? That's always the hard thing whenever you grow as a person. I'm like, man, past me was so cringe. <laughs> yes. Like, girl, were you okay? Like, that was like the question I asked myself a lot through that journey. But being kind to myself and going, you know what? Like, we all grow at different points in our life. And sometimes it takes really painful experiences to get there. And I really have to say that I think FDS really like came into my life at a time that I needed it the absolute most. Like I'm going through this divorce and, and my whole life is changing in really significant ways. I'm, you know, I was 30 when this happened. And so, you know, that's kind of a, you know, a transition into a new decade in your life too. And so FDS coming into my life at that point was, it was seriously a lifeline for me. I mean, honestly, because it was like, I'm getting stripped down and I have this opportunity to rebuild myself and my life in a way that is going to make me wiser and more resilient in the next phase. 
Makes perfect sense. I think with uh, FDS as a philosophy, why it's so difficult for people to understand like, well, I don't actually don't think it's difficult. Why some people claim it's difficult to understand or that they have trouble reconciling it with their feminist principles is because like we're not feminists that are doing it based on the idea that there's like a simple philosophy to follow. It's more or less like what is a strategy to get the things that we want that's going to benefit us more, which I think is like such a subtle shift in thinking. Maybe not subtle. Actually, I actually think it's a massive shift in thinking. Yeah. I would agree, right? I really think about how women are conditioned through our lives. It's selflessness, right? Like that's the greatest thing that we can have as a woman is to give to everybody else around us and never ask for anything in return. And, you know, when I think about the, some of the missteps that I've taken in relationships in the past, it's really centered in that. It is centered in a selflessness in giving, giving, giving and accepting, frankly, crumbs in return from a partner. And so that you're right, that shift to, you know, what many people would assume or label as selfish of, I put me first and I am making decisions that are beneficial to me and beneficial to women in general. It feels it goes against how we're socialized. Certainly, you know, I'm, I'm American. So how we're socialized here, I, I wouldn't imagine it's much better in most parts of the world, but, you know, definitely socialized to, give, give, give to everybody else. So that is a tough shift. And it feels kind of, you have to like flex that muscle, right? You have to kind of work that muscle out that it's okay to put yourself first, you know, because no one else is going to. So let's talk about your divorce then in relation to that revelation. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of how I was talking about, you know, kind of being kind to my past self and showing her some grace. I think, one of the really difficult things that came out of FDS for me was, you know, this realization that there was abuse in my relationship, in my marriage that I was not aware of in the moment. I think I was aware of it, but it really kind of honed it in for me. Like some of these just kind of changing my perspective on relationships and like the treatment that I should expect, I guess. And that probably was the single hardest realization for me through my FDS journey was that, you know, okay, my marriage ended and that was difficult and marriages end for all kinds of reasons, but also realizing that, oh, the treatment that you received throughout the entire marriage was so much less than you deserve. I think that was probably the hardest thing to reconcile. And, you know, even now, years later, it is still something that I am dealing with. And it's still something that I get in my current relationship that I'm like acutely aware and really critical of a lot of the time because there's such a, a creep on that, like on poor treatment in a relationship. I feel like it creeps up on you. You let one thing slide and then another thing slide. And it kind of is like this cascading effect of indicating to your partner that like, oh, I can treat you this way. And oh, this thing's okay now because you let it slide. And I think, you know, that's something that's been a really big learning experience for me through both FDS strategy and then being a part of the community and talking to other women who have, you know, gone through similar situations to me and sort of talking through some of those realizations with them. Mm -hmm. I think like just going back to what you said about poor treatment in relationships being a cascading effect, I think that's such a powerful thing to say. And it is really, really true as well. And that's one of the reasons why FDS, we've always said, you know, watch out for the red flags. Oftentimes, you know, low value men, they start off small to almost test your boundaries. You know, when they see they can get away with, you know, something, they'll gradually escalate, almost like the boiling frog analogy as well. But I wanted to touch on as well, because you mentioned at the top of the episode, that obviously your parents have been married for quite some time. And, you know, you yourself identify as a monogamous, somebody who believes in long relationships. You know, so what was, I guess, the process, you know, like when it came to actually ending your marriage? Because I would imagine that was a huge decision. And especially as women, we almost feel under so much pressure to make it work with the person that we've picked or the person that we've married, even when it's clearly not working as well. So walking away, even though in our head, we know it's the right thing to do, but actually doing it can be very, very difficult. You know, one of the things that I struggled with in my marriage, and I think so many women struggle with, and I think it's a 
many women, it takes kind of getting older and more experience to pick this up, but really setting boundaries was, is hard. And, you know, that cascading effect that the boiling frog analogy is so perfect for sort of what I experienced. And I think a lot of women experience in their relationships. And it just got to a point where it just kind of, it boiled over, if you will, that there was kind of a final boundary that I had that was like, it was a non-negotiable for me and it was infidelity. And my ex-husband was not faithful to me. And that was the thing that I just, there was no way to come back from that for me. And so when, you know, he came home after a business trip and had said, like, I don't think I'm going to be married anymore. And I mean, this was just like a shock to me. I mean, a complete shock to me. And then realizing, oh, he had gone on a business trip with a coworker and now they're texting all the time. And, you know, and so I think that for me was like, that was the nail in the coffin. I didn't see a path forward. And I just, I mean, talk about gray rock. Like I just gray rocked at that point. I was just so done. I had completely dead to me at that point. I mean, it was just like this switch flipped where I just was like, so done. And I'm actually really, you know, it was horrible. And it's like incredibly painful, but it was the thing that I needed to be able to walk away. And so in that regard, I'm thankful for that because I think you're right. I probably would have, you know, I would have kept trying and figuring it out. And I remember when I was going through and I'm very close with my parents. I'm an only child. I'm incredibly close with my parents. I'm, I'm so lucky to have such wonderful parents. And I remember I was at my parents' house when I was kind of like going through this process and my dad asked me, you know, I was kind of like, well, what do I do? Do I stay? You know, do I stay? Do I walk away? What do I do? And my dad asked me this question that really stuck with me. And he said, if you stay, what are you losing? What are you losing? And I thought about it and I'm like, I'm losing myself. I am indicating, I will be indicating in this relationship that you can do and say anything to me and I will stay. And that right there, I think in the next few days, I, filled out the paperwork and I filed the paperwork and I was divorced 11 days later. I remember just like, it was such a poignant conversation with my dad. And you know, my parents are very much like, you got to make the decision for you, but really good at asking the right questions to get me thinking. And that question just really, it stuck with me. It really like bored into me of like, I would be giving up myself if I stayed. It's so hard to accept and understand in that situation where you are in a marriage that you've been in a long time. And I would even say just marriage, like even like a job or something that you've really committed to and like accept and understand when you've reached a point of no return and it's time to choose yourself because it's not always clear to be fair, right? I think like you said, infidelity can be the thing I think is a line that most people draw and people understand, okay, if this happens, then I am totally within my right and it makes sense to end a marriage. It's actually even like in a lot of, religious cultures, like the one exception to uh, having to stay in a marriage for women even is like infidelity. Yeah. This is why I'm honestly, this is a bit of a tandem, why I'm baffed why the church encourages people to stay together after infidelity when even Jesus said like, nope the fuck out. Like, <laughs> I'm honestly baffled. Even Jesus said, wrap it up. He literally says, even Jesus says, wrap it the fuck up. Like it's over. <laughs> That person cheats, just pack it up. But there's also a lot of, I mean, a person generally doesn't just start cheating out of nowhere. There's usually other tells that they are deprioritizing you in that relationship prior to them actually doing it. Well, that's the thing, right? So so part of this journey for me has been, and it is painful to look back. So I was with this person for 11 years from the time I was just about to turn 19 until I was 30. And so like we basically became adults together. We did all of the like learning how to be an adult together. And so, you know, like all the big milestones that happen in your, you know, 20s and college and, you know, moving out and buying your first house and all of these things we kind of did together. And so I think, you know, I look back now, a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few years is really looking back at that relationship and examining things that at the time, you know, they may be like, maybe there was like a little red flag or like I kind of noted it in my mind. And then you just kind of, right, you move on from it because it is that cascading effect where it's like, oh, it's not that big a deal. And, you know, I'm thinking about, I can't remember what episode it was. It was the last episode, uh, I think, where you were talking about 
gaslighting and that people use the term gaslighting incorrectly. And, you know, I think this is actually a situation where there was absolutely gaslighting and, you know, where humor was the thing that was used in my marriage. Humor was the thing that was used to sort of manipulate the situation or gaslight me. Like, oh, I was just joking. Or you're being too sensitive or, you know, like kind of dismissing my feelings about stuff through humor or making a joke at my expense around people to diminish me or make me small was like the common thing that happened in my relationship. And so, oh, it, it just, it digs into it because it's hard to pinpoint, you know, it's not anger. It's not like yelling. It's not physical abuse. It's this, oh, well, I was just joking, you know, and doing that publicly around friends and family to sort of diminish your experience. And so I've spent the last few years really digging into these situations that I remember kind of having like a yuck feeling about in the moment, but then being diminished by, oh, I was just joking. You're overreacting. You're being too sensitive and actually going, no, you weren't being too sensitive. You should have listened to your gut and you should have really paid attention to how these different comments and situations were making you feel. That's the work that I've been doing. And so finding like recalibrating myself, I guess, is a lot of what I've been doing to kind of get back to trusting my gut. Because over time, when someone chips away at you in that way, you question everything. You question your mindset. You question how sensitive you are. You question your understanding of situations. It is really hard to undo all of that damage. I mean, you were young too. I mean, that's the other thing. Like you started dating him when, he, when you were 19. And I think who we are at 19 is quite different than who we are by 30. I don't know. That's why I'm such a big fan of the rotational dating model, even when you're young, because I feel like when you're young, yeah, it's easy to always question yourself because you don't have any basis of alternative experience, right? So I find this to be true with jobs. I found this to be true with relationships that sometimes like, the old advice that women are often given to like commit to something early and be like slow and steady can actually really limit you because you start to, you basically fold it into a system that already exists or a man that already exists. And then you don't necessarily have a, a full sense of yourself or what is okay and what's not okay and what options you have. So that, a lot of that makes like perfect sense for the fact that you guys started dating when you were teenagers. You know, I mean, pros and cons to long-term relationships. Because I think a lot of times the push for women is always to like prioritize the long-term relationship. And there's some disadvantages in that you may not know when you're not being treated well because you don't have any basis of comparison. I think I want to touch on that piece too, because, you know, where this relationship started too, I was not too far out of a another relationship that was abusive in a more traditional sense, if you will, before that. So my high school sweetheart, it was an abusive relationship as well. And I didn't take the time to heal between. And it set me up for, oh, this person's treating me marginally better and accepting that, right? Because, well, they're not doing these things. They're treating me better. And I think so much about all of the, you know, through the podcast, as well as other articles about these things is like, the mask slipping, right? So yeah, great. The first six months, great. He was all of these things. And it felt so much better in comparison to the previous relationship I had. And so you kind of, again, you're accepting, you know, you're accepting that. Yeah. You've touched on a really good point. And this is, you know, why I encourage my friends and even myself and organizations do this as well. When they're looking at recruitment or companies that are truly looking for the best candidates, is what they will do is, is that they will assess each candidate to an objective standard. So I remember when I was applying for government roles, they said, you know, at the assessment center, you are being assessed as an individual. So it could be that all of you passed today or none of you passed today. It's not a case of, you know, well, this person is slightly better than that person, you know, so they pass. Because the issue with that is, is that you stop looking at each candidate holistically and instead you start looking at, okay, well, they're slightly better in this area. So therefore they move forward. And I've seen, you know, myself and other women, we make this mistake where, you know, let's say our previous partner was, you know, verbally and physically abusive. 
the next partner might not be verbally or physically abusive, but they might be lazy or they might be emotionally abusive. But we say, oh, well, because he's not hitting me, he treats me better when actually we're not assessing the new guy to an objective standard or to an independent standard. And especially if you've been in a bad relationship before, it's a really, really terrible idea to compare future men to your ex because you are already starting from a baseline that is in the Mariana Trench. Like, <laughs> the baseline is already low. And I see women make this mistake, oh, they're better than my ex. My ex was this and this new guy's like that. And the new guy turns out to be just a shit, just in a different way. So this is why I'm really glad you brought that up because... It's about having an independent standing when it comes to men, because if we accept that a lot of men are trash, you know, that's why it's important to have that independent standards. And there are many, many ways that men can be trash as well. Well, and I think about, you know, that boundary that I talked about with my marriage, it was infidelity. I mean, that is talk about end of the road boundary, right? That is like, again, it's the only exception in the church, right? In some cases. And so that boundary is it's kind of the last thing. It's the end of the road. That's why it's so important for women to develop those boundaries at a young age. And I'm, you know, I'm a, apparently a late bloomer in developing some of these boundaries. And, you know, it's better late than never is kind of how I've looked at it is having, it shouldn't have had to get to that point. It should not have gotten to that point where it took infidelity to walk away. There were a hundred things before that that should have been, that was a boundary and that's been squashed. So I walk away. And it should have been, I think back to before we were married, it's not like, you know, it's not like all of a sudden, as soon as we signed that paperwork, all these red flags popped up or all this mistreatment popped up. It existed before that. And so not having those boundaries in place and doing those comparisons to a previous, even shittier relationship essentially set me up to accept, you know, something marginally better because I didn't have those boundaries in place. And it was like, that was the last, the last thing standing was the infidelity. It's like, that's a pretty flimsy thing between, you know, leaving or staying forever and being miserable. And so, you know, when I talk to my friends and, you know, talking to people in, in the discord and things, it's like having those boundaries, those non-negotiables that if this happens, I walk away and meaning it is so important for women. Facts on facts. I mean, <laughs> Okay, so, so moving slightly on from your divorce, and thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like it's very, it's really, really brave of women, especially to be open about the fact that they have been through a divorce simply because patriarchy somehow demonizes divorced women and single moms a lot more than their male counterparts. So thank you for sharing that with us. I know you've touched on this already, but it'll be interesting to hear about, you know, your dating after a divorce. You've touched on how, you know, you set those boundaries, but how did you actually, you know, put them into practice? Because it's easy having boundaries and standards in theory, but when you're actually out there interacting with men, it can become a bit more difficult. And also just wanted to clarify as well, did you find FDS at this point around the time when you started going out dating again? Yeah. So I think I want to say I discovered FDS like right around like COVID lockdown time. So like March of 2020, I think is when I discovered FDS. And what was interesting, right, is we're all locked down. And so going out on physical dates wasn't where I was, the lockdown was very, very strict. I mean, everything was closed. So going on dates wasn't really physical dates going out in person was not really an option at this time. And so that was actually kind of an interesting social experiment to kind of, I did a lot of like virtual dates and like phone calls and that kind of thing during this time, which I think was actually a good thing for me as I'm coming out of this divorce and having some distance to basically, you know, it's easy to get caught up. And I think that especially when you're hurting and you're recovering from a really traumatic experience, like a breakup or, you know, or fill in the blank kind of traumatic experience that we get caught up, right? We want to feel good and meeting someone new that's exciting and makes us feel good and, you know, is probably love bombing us. It feels good, right? And so having this distance during this time was actually really helpful. And so I used this period of time to enact boundaries with people who didn't mean a lot to me. It feels gross saying that, but it was, it was like... No, it doesn't. <laughs> Say it with your chest. I mean... <laughs> And also, I completely agree. Like having boundaries, I remember reading from 
a therapist, I can't remember the book, but having boundaries, especially as women, it's like a muscle. The more you use it and flex it, the stronger it gets. So absolutely, 100% agree. Like use these men as training armbands when you like first learn how to swim, so to speak. Uh, 100% agree with it. We were talking about using jobs you don't want for interview practice. So like just apply to a bunch of jobs and then try to schedule all the jobs you don't actually want for interviews ahead of the time. Honestly, God. <laughs> First. <laughs> dating is not unlike that. Yeah. <laughs> practice on them. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know how cognizant of that, that I was doing that at that time. But looking back, it was like, oh, here's an opportunity, right? With some distance, because we're not meeting each other in person necessarily. Although I did with a, a few, you know, that I'm thinking through my boundaries and I'm practicing my boundaries. Like, okay, I match with someone on a dating app and they immediately launch into making some gross sexual comment, right? Like boundary done. Like we're not talking anymore. We're done. So like just kind of practicing, like you said, Savannah, you know, flexing that muscle of it's okay to say, I don't like that. No, thank you. I'm moving, you know, next basically. And so that's what I spent this time doing was doing that. And then, you know, and then I, there was one individual who I got more involved with. And it was, again, a bad situation. And your girl almost made the same mistake again of comparing to the last relationship and accepting marginally better treatment in certain arenas. And, you know, and then I remember I found this, it was like an infographic. And I think it was on FDS. It was like an infographic. And it was about gaslighting. And it was the different markers of gaslighting and the different ways that people do that. And it's like a light bulb went off in my head. And I just I ended that relationship immediately after seeing that it was like having this like objective description of what I was experiencing. I just ended it right there. And I just I went back to the drawing board and kind of went, okay, you almost just fell into the same exact pattern. Because, you know, at that point, almost 30 years, well, let's say 15 years of kind of updating and accepting crumbs from people to unlearn. And you're not going to do that in six months. So, you know, so there was definitely trial and error during that point. And I learned a lot of like, one, my boundaries and how like, I'm not being a jerk or being an asshole by saying, I don't accept that treatment. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And it's nothing personal to the other person. It's just you're not meeting the standard or the expectations that I have and go find someone else who you do. And that's okay. So there was a lot of sort of, again, like this self reconciliation that, you know, I think I talked a little bit earlier about like women are conditioned to accept nothing and give everything. And so having to change your mindset on that, it's a hard journey because it feels like you're being, you know, an ice queen or you're being callous. We have all these words in our society to describe women who have boundaries or stand up for themselves. And so you're fighting against sort of that rhetoric that you're cruel or you're going to be a spinster or, you know, for me, it was you've hit the wall because you're 30. And so, you know, I'm fighting against these things in this process while also dealing with a lot of trauma, rebuilding my life. And so I really, I use it as a time to do exactly that, to strip it all down and go, what do you want? And what do you expect of the people around you? And that meant friends, family, and a romantic relationship. Yeah, I definitely think COVID was almost like the great reset for a lot of women in terms of relationships and what they expected. I remember the subreddit just had this exponential boom in traffic and membership during that COVID period, because I think a lot of women, almost like you described, they were forced to take stock of their relationships and what they wanted from it. And I guess being isolated for the most part made that a lot easier, I think, as well. Or being stuck in their house with their partner 24-7 and going, what am I doing? Yeah, that's true. Okay, so moving on uh, slightly as well, during our initial discovery call, you mentioned that you were child-free, a lifestyle that I am very much in favor of personally. Anyway, so in terms of being child-free, how did you navigate that whilst dating as well? Because I know from experience, I've had mixed experiences with men when I mentioned that I have no interest in having their cells populate my womb. So it'll be interesting just to hear your thoughts on the child-free lifestyle and how you managed to navigate dating because you're also in a committed relationship as well. So it'll be good to hear your perspective on that. I mean, when I was married, I kind of 
I think again, you know, I'm, I'm in this relationship. I got into this relationship at a very young age where I wasn't sure what I wanted out of my life. And so as we were growing up together, if you will, and figuring out adulthood and, you know, and then we got married. I think we were 24, 25 when we got married. He really wanted children. That was like very important to him. And I think that I sort of accepted that. I kind of said, well, okay, like I'd be fine with one child. And, you know, and then as we sort of got, I had all these like benchmarks, right? Once we buy a house, then I'll be ready. And then once I get this kind of job or once I make this amount of money, I'll be ready for that. And so it was like, I had all these things that I felt like I wanted to do or needed to do. And then I would be ready. And I never really got to that place where I was like, oh yeah, now I, I want a child really bad and, and I'm ready because I have all the things in place to do it. I never got there. And so, you know, after my divorce, that was one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about. It's like, did I actually want children? And it was the wrong person, which is, I think, something, you know, that women face where they're like, I do want a child. And then they realize like, oh, it's just not with this person. And then, you know, on the other hand, it's, I don't want children. And that was also the wrong person. So I feel very thankful that I did not have children with my ex-husband. I was able to have a really clean break. And so I'm very thankful for that because, you know, I have friends who have children with their ex and they have to see them, you know, multiple times a week. And I got to just step up. Oh, but I can't go on there. I cannot go on that subreddit. It really is. And I did. I honestly, I spent some time on that subreddit reading through people's stories. And I think, you know, just really kind of thinking through that. Our breaking mom, <laughs> free contraception. <laughs> How did you come to that conclusion? Like what put you over the hump as far as like definitively deciding that you don't want children? I really just thought about my life and like, what do I enjoy most about my current life? And what do I want in five years? And, you know, I'm a really career driven person. And, and that's not to say you can't be a mother and be those things, you know, be career driven and do all these other things too. I live alone. I like my peace a lot. I like to be able to come and go as I please. And so, you know, I just thought about the lifestyle that I want. Again, like I know I've, I've mentioned it multiple times now is conditioning, right? Like I thought about how many people in general, but I think particularly women do things because, well, that's the next thing you're supposed to do, right? Well, okay, well, we dated. So now we need to get married because that's the next thing you do. And then, uh, well, we're married. And, and so the next thing we should do is have children. And, you know, and the greatest thing you can be is a wife and a mother, right? So I thought a lot about the conditioning that I had and have had, and that's all around us. And I really thought about what is it that I want? And a lot of my female friends are child-free by choice as well. And so I uh, spent a lot of time kind of talking with them. One of my dearest friends is six or seven years older than me. And so she's been sure of this for a long time. And so I just spent time talking with the women that I trust and care about. And, you know, and I just, I just didn't see a lifestyle that would make me happy, that would be conducive to having children. Yeah, I completely relate to that. I just spent a lot of time thinking about that as an individual, right? Not as in a relationship. It's like, I needed to understand what I need as an individual. And then at a point, right, find a partner who fits into that as well, who has those same ideologies that I do and has the same vision for their life. And, you know, Ro, like you said earlier, getting into that relationship that ended in a marriage and ultimately a divorce at such a young age, you don't know who you are and you have so much growing to do and understanding what you want and those boundaries that you have. I'm at a point now, you know, I'm like in my mid thirties now and I've had time as an individual and, you know, and I know what I want now. And so looking for a partner that meets those things and the lifestyle that I want and the things that I believe in that are important to me is easier now because I'm sure of those things. That's so interesting. So do you think there's a difference in the way you have to date if you don't want to have children versus if you are a person that wants to have children? Like how is it interacting with men? Yes. yes. 100%. 100%. I would say. I mean, sorry to jump in there, June, but yeah, 100%. It, it has to be. And it's almost like, I'm not sure if we found this as well, June, but I found that even when I wasn't interested in a man, let's say he was an acquaintance or the partner of like one of my girlfriends, if I said, I'm not having kids, I'm child free, they would start trying to talk me into it. And I'm like, mate, I'm not even going to have kids with you. Why do you care? And they'd be like, oh, you know, you've got good genes, you know, you should have kids. I'm like, fuck off. Like, honestly, men 
when it comes to women having bodily autonomy, even if, you know, they may not be interested in having kids with you, they get very, very funny about it. And I think it's that conditioning that even, you know, men get that every woman aspires to be a mother at some point. And I've just never felt that. Agreed. I think what was so interesting is that, you know, even in dating men that claim to be child free, or they maybe didn't claim to be child free, but they were leaning towards not having children. It's like you talk to them and then they kind of, they're changing, right? They're changing their viewpoint. Well, I mean, I wouldn't mind having one. What do you think about having one? And I would say in sort of those early days of being on dating apps and stuff, I was still working through some of that. And so, you know, maybe I was not as like clear on that as I am now, but it was so interesting. Savannah is totally right. And in my personal life too, like who's going to take care of you when you're old is something that I hear a lot as a child-free person. And it's like having children to take care of you when you're old is a really messed up reason to have kids in the first place. I hate that. Children are not a retirement plan. Like there's so many things that could just blow that plan. And not to mention it's it's just so, so selfish. Like you don't have kids to, it's like breeding your future carers. Like That's not a reason to have a child. Yeah. That particular question or, you know, sort of rhetoric of like just has disgusted me through this journey because it's a question I hear regularly. You're going to be alone when you die. Well, everybody is. So, and also like, you know, like you said, there's a million reasons why your kids wouldn't be there at the end. There's a million reasons for that. So I never understood kind of that thought process. But in dating, it was so interesting because I would get sort of that response from men too, who even said they weren't interested in having kids. Well, like, what's your purpose then? Kind of that thought. And I'm like, what do you mean? What's my purpose? You know, I have friends and family and hobbies and a job that I love and all these other things. Having a child's not the only reason the only purpose for women, like it just, it really highlighted sort of the deep seated misogyny that is in our culture and particularly around women's usefulness. That was really eye opening for me. And so I doubled down last summer and I actually had uh, my tubes removed last summer and the amount of like how much less stress I feel now, like just that that is a decision I've made. It's a for sure thing and it's a permanent thing, was like, I was able to take just like a sigh of relief, if you will, to be able to make that decision. And and I was also like, so shocked with my doctor was so great. I was expecting to have a fight, right? Like there's so many horror stories of yes. women who are sure, and you got to fight for it. Like I've known since I was 10 years old that I didn't want to have kids and I'm 30 now. And the, well, what if you meet the right man? Well, then he's not the right man if he wants kids. Like, that's just like saying, I don't know, like, if you met the right guy, but he wants to live in Australia, like, well, he's not the right one, because I don't want to live in Australia. It's about compatibility. And I don't know if you got it as well, because you said you knew from him, like, when you were 10. But I always grew up without a maternal instinct in my body. Like, babies, I find them cute, but I've never thought I want one of my own, like, ever. And I often got, oh, you'll change your mind when you're older. But it's like, as I've gotten older and become more into myself, become more successful in my career, it's only made me want kids less. (laughs) I think if it was 10 years ago, I might be like, maybe one day, but the older I get and the more successful I become as an individual, the less I want kids. I agree a hundred percent. You know, I kept waiting for that clock, that internal clock to start ticking. (laughs) And I'm like, where is she? Why is she not ticking? You know? And it just, that never came for me. And so... I thought there was something wrong with me. I don't know if you kind of went through this too, Savannah, that like, I kind of thought, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. Like, why don't I have that maternal instinct? Why don't I have this like longing to have children? And then I just realized it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like you can take a different path and it's maybe one that's kind of less traveled, but that's okay. And I think that, you know, having a child's kind of the one thing you can't undo, right? You take a job you don't like, you can get a different job. You buy a house you don't like, You can sell it and buy a different house, you know, but having a child is a forever commitment. It is a lifetime commitment. And if it's not a hell yeah, it should be a no. And that's kind of how I sort of ended up even starting to explore that is like, it wasn't something that ever felt exciting to me or something. It felt like a compromise 
in my marriage and a child should not be a compromise. And so that for me was really kind of the thing that went, maybe that isn't for you. Amen, sis. I mean, so obviously you are in a relationship now. How did you vet your partner to ensure that he's actually child free? Like, I know that the future's uncertain, people can change their mind, but you've been together for quite some time. How did you have that conversation? How were you, you know, sure that he was actually child free as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I just laid it out. I'm kind of a blunt person, pretty direct about stuff. And so I just, I laid that out and we still like, I, that's something we talk about regularly too, like sort of checking in with each other. And I would say he's probably even more like aggressively child-free than I am. Like he's known since a very young age and he's not wavered in that at all. And so, you know, he has nieces and nephews and he's, Kind of like what you said, like, oh, they're cute, but no, thank you. You know, he's just, that's just not who he is. And he's very much, we're both very introverted. We both very much like our space and our peace and our alone time. And so again, it's just not conducive to either of our lifestyles, I guess. And so it was pretty uh, clear from the jump and it's been consistent through our entire relationship that that's not something that either of us are interested in even slightly and so you know he was completely supportive of my decision to get my you know get my tubal removal surgery you know he took care of me through all of that and was 100% supportive of that and it wasn't even like oh great you're doing that for us it was like that's what you want i absolutely support you in doing that as an individual right that is your decision and it is beneficial to you because that is a choice that you are making about the lifestyle that you want so even taking it a step further than just like hey this is good for both of us and you're taking on the burden of doing that so i don't have to it was regardless of whether i'm in the picture or not this is the lifestyle that you want what can i do to help you nice And again, I guess, because I see this on some of the child-free subreddits as well, where they have a partner who then just has a 180 and all of a sudden wants kids, which isn't a bad thing. But I think, especially if you are committed to the child-free lifestyle, again, it goes back to maintaining that boundary and not giving in. I know. Yeah, men are like, my legacy, all of a sudden at 35. (laughs) Oh, my legacy. If you've got $1 million in assets or pounds in assets. My legacy. Then we can start talking about your legacy and your titles passing down. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I feel like nobody wants your collection of Hot Wheels and Star Wars action figures. And your student loan debt. And your student loan debt. <laughs> and so. your Cheeto dust. And your Cheeto dust. None of this is worth anything. <laughs> I mean, so, so pivoting slightly actually from the child-free stuff so you know obviously Ro and I are running a career series in tandem on the bonus content uh, where it's mainly Ro ranting about corporate but there's some gems in there as well I did realize a can of worms are open when I suggested the career series because I was like oh, okay and then every week she just gets angrier and angrier <laughs> I can't stop ranting there's just so much to be mad about <laughs> it's kind of bad sorry y'all but I mean, I'm in America, so we have no workers' rights. So I feel like comparatively, and the, just the amount of hyper-competitiveness and the lack of any type of uh, worker protections of any kind, that's what America's like right now. So I don't think, I'm not the only person who's like that. She's off again. She's off again. <laughs> she is off again. <laughs> Accepting crumbs in our relationships and are in our jobs. Yeah, it's really bare minimum crumbs out here. It really is. And now Ro is going on mute. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> and it's the mind games on top of it. Okay. So listen to the career series on Patreon. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash female dating strategy. If you want me to hear, hear me rant about corporate America. So obviously you are also quite senior in your career as well. And it'll be interesting to get a bit of an idea about your career path and how you've, you know, navigated ascending the corporate ranks, so to speak, in the corporate hellscape that is the US of A. This is probably my favorite topic to talk about when we talk about feminism and radical feminism is like how to utilize kind of your femininity in your professional life. So I'm in a leadership role. I work in uh, government and so slightly less of a hellscape than uh, corporate America, I will say, you know, but much better benefits and things in government. But when I'm thinking sort of like parallel of my relationship and my 
career, you know, where I was really sort of silenced and made to feel small in my relationship, I think back to that point in my career, and that was showing up professionally for me too, where I was sort of, I was in spaces professionally where I was told I was too much, I was too loud, I was too passionate, I was too assertive, I was too fill in the blank things. Preach. Oh, <laughs> it was such a hard point in my career because I am this like passionate, strong willed, assertive woman. And it's like the things that make me who I am and that I love most about myself. And I'm being told those things are wrong, both at home. They don't want women like that in corporate America's women like that peep the manipulation, the mind games, etc. Yep. So I was getting that at home and I'm getting that at work too. So, you know, I remember kind of like going like, who am I, you know, having sort of an existential crisis at this point of like, who am I? Because I had been like, when I think of like all through school and into college and stuff, I was just like this force kind of, you know, in my academic career. And then I'm stepping into this professional world and I'm coming in at, at, you know, entry level. So, you know, seen and not be heard. And then, you know, I'm trying to sort of climb up the rungs professionally and I'm still being told like, know your place basically. And so, and it was from other women. And that was the hardest thing was it was from other women that were uh, much older than me that were sort of like squashing me. And, you know, like I remember I had this boss that was just, she was much older than me. She was probably in her late sixties, early seventies. And I'm like 25 at this point. And I came in and I'm like, I have all these things that I can offer. I can, you know, make things more efficient. I can build new systems. And I, you know, and I saw all these things that we could make better. And I had all these ideas and I was, you know, I was hungry. And the biggest squasher of sort of my drive was other women. And I think that was really hard for me to, it's like, we're supposed to be on the same team here. We're supposed to be supporting each other. That's unfortunately been my experience as well. (laughs) It's been my experience as well. Like all the, aggro in my career has been caused by other women? Well, I think to be blunt, and I don't know, it's not to create like a necessary division with women, but like, there's two things in my opinion that might be going on. And one of it is that the women that ascend through the ranks in any type of way tend to be the type of women who are willing to be that kind of person to squash, exploit and bully other women. That ex- because remember, they're operating within the bounds of that patriarchy that is generally headed by men. And then on the other hand, I think what happens is some of them just peter principle out and they're very threatened with their own job security by newer workers. So then like their incentive is then just to like subtly sabotage anybody who thinks they might have promise. And I think both were at play here. Like I've seen both sort of coexist in the same person, right? Well, like I paid my dues. I paid my dues. And so you need to too. And I'm going to make it as hard for you as it was for me. And so, you know, I think that's more devastating than facing, like I faced that from men in my, you know, throughout my career too, but it was women, certain women that did it much more. And that's devastating for me as a young professional. And just starting out my career was like, I saw, you know, women in leadership and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to aspire to be them. And I want to sort of hook myself to them to learn from them so that I can be in their position one day and I can, you know, and not like their exact position, like I'm not gunning for your job, but so I can ascend to that level eventually. And again, it was like, it was met as a threat. And it was like, I want to learn from you, like mentor me, like teach me what you know. And so I've been in a leadership position a little over a year now and in, in senior positions for a couple of years now. And it's so interesting, you know, I really, my sort of leadership philosophy or perspective is I really think about my experiences through my career and how different things that people that I respected or that I reported to or managed me, the things that they said or did and how that made me feel. And I really, I really try to be cognizant of that when I'm working with my staff or, you know, I lead from a place of, I'm kind of an emotional leader, I would say. And I think that's where I've leaned in in my femininity is not trying to be the sort of quote unquote man in leadership, you know, having to act like a man to be successful in leadership. I really reject that. And I lead from a strong place of empathy with my staff. I lead from vulnerability. I'm really open and honest with my staff. And, you know, sometimes maybe to a fault. 
but I do show vulnerability to my staff like, hey, I'm having a hard day and this is why and this is the support that I need from you guys. And so, you know, trying to create a more collaborative environment where all voices are valuable to the work and recognizing, you know, I think, Ro, this will probably resonate with you. And burnout is so significant in US work culture. Burnout is yes. no joke here. Like, People are exhausted and the last three years, like sort of through and, and now quote unquote post COVID has been like exhausting for people. And like I see that in my colleagues and I see that in my staff and we talk about that and we address that and we try to remedy that how we can. Like, all right, you're seeming burnout. What can we take off your plate this week to give you some breathing room? Like I'm checking in with my staff. Hey, you haven't taken a day off in a while. Like, you know, you need to put a vacation day in, like, let's make it happen. Hey, why don't you flex some time today? And so, you know, really just it's empathy all the time. Like I really talk to my staff a lot about like, we've got lives outside of work and that is more important than work. And so like, if things are going on at home, that's making it hard for you to show up today. Like, let's just let me know and we'll figure out a way to give you the space to deal with that because people will work harder for you and they'll do better work when they're not burnt out and they're not torn in a million different ways, worrying about at home things. And so, you know, I really, I just try to lead in a different way than I've been led. And, you know, I think it's been successful. And it's also, I will say for some of the older male employees that I've managed has looked like weakness to them. And there's been situations where that has been, they've attempted to exploit that like, oh, because you're empathetic and caring, that must mean that you're weak and that I can walk all over you. And, you know, they're sorely mistaken by that thought, because as soon as they sort of step out of line, I'll be as empathetic and kind to you as you choose me as you choose. When you step out of line, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to get a different kind of manager. So that's kind of tell them it is. It's kind of like a, you know, it's get in. No. <laughs> it's a reward based system, right? Like I will yeah. be as caring and flexible and empathetic as you deserve. And so in its work, well, I'd say 90% of the time it works well. There's 10% of the time where, you know, I've had to have a conversation and say like, Hey, you know, don't get it twisted that I'm weak or that you can walk all over me. That's empathy and caring is not seen as weakness and it shouldn't be. It's strength to me. So that's kind of been my, I mean, my kind of professional journey is uh, leaning into those characteristics that maybe historically in the workplace and particularly in leadership have been seen as weak because, well, that's just being an emotional woman, right? Caring about your staff or talking about, you know, the tough things or showing people grace when they're having a hard day or, you know, showing emotion. Like I've certainly cried in front of my staff. We do really emotional, like taxing work and it's hard work and there's nothing wrong with showing the human side of work. Absolutely. I mean, this is all really, really great perspective. I mean, <laughs> it's so interesting to hear and I, I'm looking for it as we interview more women on this podcast, like sometimes how your like personal and professional journeys can line up and then how women are navigating workplace politics, like with a situation, especially in America where like work has become so maybe it's always been this way, but it's so exploitative and it doesn't even like hide the naked exploitation aspect of it. Like how do you as a female leader navigate that? And I think you really articulated your philosophy and your style really well. So good insight for aspiring female leaders. I think I've, you know, I've attracted some really great talent too by like, I talk about that in the interview process. You know, I talk about, hey, you know, you've got to make sure this is the right choice for you too. I mean, I, I talk a lot about that with candidates. Like, this is my leadership style. And, you know, I'm working with our HR team to try to uh, create a system to be able to allow candidates to do reference checks on me too. So for them to be able to talk to my staff, to ask them questions about what it's like working for me, because I want to be completely transparent to make sure that it's the right fit for them. Because maybe they don't want to deal with, you know, maybe they're like, I don't want the touchy feely, like vulnerability stuff. That's not the right thing for them. Then they need to make that choice for themselves. But so, you know, trying to find as much transparency in the process as possible, because that's what's going to make a strong team. That's what's going to put out a better work product. That's what's going to make people stay, right? People leave jobs because of bad management and or bad colleagues that management is not taking care of, right? Removing people that are a drain on the team. They're not correcting bad behavior. That's why people leave. People don't leave because the work's hard. They leave because the people around them, they don't want to deal with it. That's why I've left every job is I didn't have a good manager. I didn't have good support from management. 
I didn't have good colleagues. So yeah, I try to be as transparent as possible about those things. I mean, and to reiterate that that's also been my experience as well is that when you're again young in my career, I was a first gen like white collar worker. So I did not know whatsoever, like what to expect. And so I didn't know how to vet companies for the type of fit that would be beneficial for myself. And so then you end up in these toxic situations. Sometimes sometimes the more enthusiastic uh, they are about you and you think up front like, oh, okay, they seem really excited to bring me on. And it's all because you're going to be the scapegoat or you're going to be the person that they expect to magically fix all these like toxic problems internally that management doesn't want to deal with. So I had to learn that like, I'm interviewing a company just as much as they're interviewing me. And it's about like a place where I'll be happy and not just a place where they can exploit or blame me for things that are really above my pay grade that people don't want to deal with. Right. So there's just like, there's a dual process of learning oneself enough to know what type of work environment that you thrive in and also acquiring the skills that would make you attractive to that environment. I mean, my philosophy now has been, we've got a finite amount of time on this earth. And you know, work is a huge portion of your week. I mean, say 40 hours, if you're lucky, right? Many people are working 50 plus hours a week. That's a big chunk of time each week. And I know it's a luxury to get to enjoy the work that I do. And that's not a luxury that everybody has. And so making sure that those hours are as enjoyable as you can is so important. And I think there's really been, you know, the last few years, it's really people have gone back to the drawing board on what they want out of a job and what they expect and what kind of treatment they expect and uh, what work life balance means, you know. My whole team and I are all remote 100% of the time. And, you know, that alone is attractive for people as, you know, a lot of companies are starting to force workers to go back in person for, frankly, no reason. You know, that's allowed me to attract better candidates and better talent to my team, which is going to make ultimately the work we do so much better. And it gives me the flexibility with my team to say like, Hey, it's cool if you take a long lunch break and go take your dog for a walk, if that's what you need to like be successful the rest of the day. So I just think we're in a place in, I think there's kind of a revolution coming as far as, you know, working, uh, workers rights and expectations of jobs in the US at least. And, and I'm sure that this will resonate with people in other places as well, but that's what I've seen a lot. And so I'm trying to lean into that as a leader that I can affect that change and I can solidify that change, if you will, that like I can say, no, for my team, this is what they'll get and making sure that that is protected and I protect that and I am their voice in those conversations where that is starting to get chipped away at again. So that's really one of the privileges that I have being in the position I am is the ability to advocate for what my team needs and kind of hold the line on that stuff. I'm of the opinion that anybody that doesn't adapt to younger workers, workers who need more accommodations and just basic worker uh, perks like yeah, work from home flexibility. We need to starve all those companies of talent. Like ruthless strategy time. Like again, you'll you'll hear my rants on the Patreon about this. Like I am one hundred percent about starving companies who refuse to adapt to workers of talent. Like even if they're a big company like Apple or Amazon, go there, do a couple years to get your four one k vested take all their trade secrets, take all their training and take it to another company, like point blank period, like make it cost them. Like, sorry, I hate, I hate American work culture. Did you know? Did you guys know? Sorry if I haven't made that clear from my multiple rants. So, all right. Probably roses great time now, isn't it? Yeah, roses great time. Thank you so much, June, for sharing your story with us, both uh, personally and professionally. Um, you've brought so much insight to the podcast and it was really, really great to hear from you. And thank you for being part of FDS um, as well. I've seen your comments in the Discord and I know that our members there really, really appreciate your insight. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. And obviously, (laughs) finishing, capping off an FDS episode won't be an FDS episode without some form of roast somewhere. So June, the floor is yours. Do you have any scrote, past or present in your life that you want to put on the FDS barbecue because it's summertime and the FDS barbecue has been put in storage for some time, but we're going to whip it out today again to roast June's scrote. I had to get into the archives here because there's so many to choose from. But the one that kind of sticks out to me is somebody, I kind of, I mentioned this sort of this, let's call it a situationship. Let's call it what it really was. 
situationship earlier, uh, you know, when I talked about the gaslighting infographic that I saw and I ended this situationship is this particular situation. So this relationship was horrible. It was, you know, I was crying all the time and he was just like gaslighter, manipulator, like was, didn't take care of his mental health, whatever, all of these things. And so I ended it and I said, basically like lose my number, blocked and deleted, whatever. So this was three years ago, Uh, about a month ago, I get a text out of the blue and it's like, Hey, I had a dream about you. And I'm like, you know, who is this? And of course, this person is like, so offended that I didn't know who they were. So offended. And so, you know, he tells me who it is. And I'm like, like new phone, who it is? Exactly. (laughs) The audacity for him to think that he would still matter or that you would even recognize him years after the fact is just complete screw audacity. Three years after. And it's not like we ended on good terms like, oh, this just isn't working out. It was like, don't ever talk to me, lose my phone number. Like it ended like spectacularly bad. And so it was kind of like, I'm curious, right? I'm I'm curious. I'm like, okay, you know, what is this about? And, you know, he's like, I had a dream about you. And, you know, it just got me thinking. And, you know, and so I kind of, you know, I poked the bear a little bit because I couldn't not poke the bear on this situation, which I don't recommend. I do not recommend doing that. But in this situation, I kind of was like, I'm curious because it was so out of the blue. And so I'm kind of like, Oh, what's this about? Oh, you know, you're the one that got away. And I've been thinking about you a lot lately. And I think it's really important to note that when he and I were involved, he lived a few hours away. And and he was also, we were not exclusive or anything. And he was seeing another woman that lived locally. And he was like back and forth between the two of us all the time. And I knew I was the emotional fluffer, if you will. She couldn't give him the emotional side. So he kind of used me to get that, the kind of like that kind of connection. And she was the physical connection for him. It was a super gross situation. And so he's like, you know, I've missed talking to you. No one's connected with me like you did. You just really understood me. I mean, spewing complete bullshit. And I'm like, somebody who's this kind of like depraved is doing this with other people too. Like, absolutely. And it's just kind of reaching into the vault to see what women he can text to try to get, I don't know, some attention from. So I'm like, okay, now I'm really curious. So I do some sleuthing. I'm like, I find this dude's Facebook. He is married. He was not married. What? When we were involved three years ago. He is married to the other woman that he was involved with at the same time as me. He's married to her now. Isn't that always the way, though? Because I feel like a lot of my exes or acquaintances who have popped up out of the blue, it's because they were they have made some huge commitment that they're probably freaking out about or they are planning to and therefore trying to like, (laughs) I don't know, have someone else save backpedal. Yeah, backpedal, have someone else save them from themselves or like pretend like they actually had other options when they don't? Yeah, I think that's absolutely. So it gets worse because then I'm looking through these pictures and I realize that she is massively pregnant in a picture that was about a month old. So I ask him about this. And literally the day he texted me was the day after she gave birth to their child. And I just... Shit. Wow. The like physical reaction I had to this was just like immediately nauseous from this. Stuff like that is like why it's so hard to like men as people. Because I just feel like that's such a uniquely male thing to do. Like wait till your partner has just like probably made the biggest physical, mental, emotional sacrifice that they could possibly ever make for a person and just find that opportunity to completely disrespect them and go behind their back. Like why right then? What is with guys like that? Well, I think... What kind of I thought through it, right? And I was thinking about, okay, so when we were involved, there was kind of this like, quote unquote, love triangle going on a couple years ago, she was the physical person, I was the emotional person. So he was getting everything he needed from the two of us. Well, I guarantee you for the last, you know, however long, like in your third trimester, I don't think you're like getting down all the time with your partner. So my guess is he wasn't getting the physical thing from her. And so, you know, and then you can't, have sex for six weeks after you give birth that he's now reaching out because he's like starved for attention. It just like... I'm not going to lie. That's part of the reason why, a small part of the reason why I decided to become child free because 
most men just don't deserve to have their genes passed down. They just become so scroty and shitty after their wife gives birth. Like, it's ridiculous. I know. I felt so sad for his wife, like for his wife in that moment. And it just, it was so transparent to me, I guess, what, you know, what was going on here. So, of course, you know, ultimately, I told him to kick rocks and uh, shout out to my partner for helping me craft all these text messages. He was right there alongside me, pulling strings with me. <laughs> Love that. A man that can roast other men with you. Oh, goals. Those who roast together <laughs> stay together is what they say. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, that's our show. Check us out on Twitter at fem.strat and on our Patreon for weekly bonus content, as well as a Discord, as well as merchandise, as well as uh, submitting your roast to scrotes or queen shits if you want us to read it on the podcast. You can discuss this episode on the website on thefemaledatingstrategy.com, as well as our Instagram page at underscore thefemaledatingstrategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you boomerang scrotes out there, we still don't want you. Die mad. And die alone. See y'all next week. See you next week. Bye.